I want to do with you tonight, what, which is what I think Stephen does every week, probably Nathan as well, but um, just kind of share with you where I've been at in the Word. Um, we've talked about for a long time that the greatest deterrent to, uh, Stephen said something to me years ago, he said the greatest deterrent to burnout is being in the Word. And I used to think, um, just honestly, I used to think that that was, uh, what he meant was a kind of an intellectual dialogue. It's an intellectual exercise, rather. You know, keeping your mind filled with something, keeping it busy, keeping focused, knowing what you're doing. But it's not. It's, a, it's, it's bigger than that. It's a conversation with Jesus. And, and, I mean, just all preaching aside, just being as honest with you as I can be, it's a conversation with Jesus that you have. And, and when you get into the Word, because, you know, we struggle at times saying, well, and I hear teens say this all the time, is, you know, I want to walk with Jesus, but he never talks to me. Well, maybe you're not in the Word, you know? Maybe you're just not talking about the same things, because this is what he talks about. And, and, there's, and there's a variety of topics and a, and a variety of things that he talks about, but this, this is it. <clears throat> and I need to be careful on time, because Stephen said I only had 30 minutes. He texted me twice. He said, he goes, why don't you come preach? He goes, you got 30 minutes. And then he texted back, and he says, remember, 30 minutes. So he's probably going to check up on us. I want to look with you out of Revelation chapter 4, <clears throat> and we, I stopped studying Revelation. Uh, and actually, we're going to do a quick overview up to chapter 4, probably, yeah, just through chapter 4. Um, I stopped studying Revelation uh, about a year ago, um, kind of out of some backlash, and I kind of forgot the reason why I started to study it, which was not to preach out of it. I studied it for me, and so uh, I've kind of returned to that, that this is not for you. I'm not working up sermons, and so if you don't like it, you don't have to listen. But I'm getting, uh, I've, been, I've returned to the book of Revelation. <clears throat> We've been looking at chapter 4. And one of the reasons I went back to chapter 4, this dawned on me about two or three weeks ago. About three weeks ago, this dawned on me. Uh, and I forget what I was doing. I was studying something else or reading about something. And it just dawned on me. And I think it was the Lord speaking to me. That out of the entire Bible, listen to this. I think this is so neat. Out of the entire Bible, there is no more thorough or greater um, detailed picture of what the throne room of God looks like aside from Revelation chapters 4 and 5. I mean, this is, this is the one. I mean, you've got other prophets that says this, that, and the other, and you've got, you got some subtle references, but this is a detailed picture. Two full chapters. It's the only thing that's going on here in chapters 4 and 5 is a picture of what's taking place in the throne room of God, which, by the way, we can enter boldly. Now, so, and what we're finding, <clears throat> and what I've been finding, and this is, again, just me just playing around in the Word, get, you know, me and Jesus, that is. And so what I've been finding is that it's not, he doesn't give us physical details, which is what made me think about when they asked me, what, what's going on with your church? Well, <laughs> I don't know about, you know, I don't know if I want to describe, you know, to them, some of you, but uh, you know, physically, <laughs> but, you know, spiritually, okay? Seriously, I mean, we, I, I know what my wife and kids are getting when we come here. I mean, I know, it's, it's, I know the emphasis of our life. I know what, I know what they're hearing. And, and that seems to be the emphasis, not physical detail stuff, but it's the spiritual content of chapters 4 and 5. So I've come back to study this, and it's about, it's about me and Jesus, and I don't know if I'll end up preaching this or not, but I'm going to continue to study uh, and walk through it because it is just so fun. But I want to catch you up to speed because we got some time. And again, this is not preaching. This is just sharing where I've been at in the Word. I want to look with you at chapter 1, chapter 2, and 3, 
Yeah, I've already messed it up. You know it's Revelation, so I can erase that. Chapters 2 and 3. And chapter four, and we're looking at. I'm looking at chapter four independently of chapter five in my studies because there's a there's a shift that takes place in chapter five, and it's it's chapter four is given over to talk about the throne room scene and its content, who is there, what is there, and it's all symbolism that's plucked right out of the Old Testament, which is con- consistent with Revelation. And then chapter four, it's what's going on in Command Central. Okay, I mean Command Central of the entire universe. Chapter five, Woo, it's gonna be great. So I'll keep you posted when we're around. Maybe this is all we'll look at. Uh, But chapter one is divided up, and it's basically an introductory chapter. And if you have pen and paper, you can feel free to take notes, or you can do your own thing. This is my studies on this. Um, The first section you have in uh, chapter one is the prologue. And that's uh, verses one through three. And the prologue is an introduction to the book itself. Uh, It's before the introduction. It's a style of writing that they had in our day. We have a style of writing uh, in our day and age, which is pretty sad. (laughs) It's email and that kind of thing. But in their day, there was a a literary style when they wrote uh, letters. And this follows that style. Uh, John, of course, who's writing, pinning this down, uh, out of his five writings, three of them have prologues. Luke has a prologue. Okay, so there's other writers that have these prologues, and he incorporates one. And what it does, it's a preparatory kind of, sometimes there's theology in there, but most of the time it's just a before word. In fact, that's what prologue means. It's a compound Greek word, pro and logos. And pro is before, logos is word. So it's a before word. It's, it's before you ever get into this book, just consider this. And we've got like 13 studies in these first three verses because he just packs it with just significance. And we've got a small outline for that, but I won't, I won't give that to you this evening. But the first three verses are the prologue, main, first main section in Revelation chapter 1. The second main section is we're calling it the persons. And that's verses 4 through 5a. And we're calling that the person section because there's a variety of people that are being introduced. You have John in verse 4 who's introduced as the writer of the, of the book. Okay? He's not the author, by the way. He's the writer. In other words, this is not his material. Okay? He didn't sit down and, and, and kind of through some dreamy state think up of something to say. He is, he is, a, he is writing this information down. In fact, there are times, uh, and I think it's in chapter uh, 11, when he's told, yeah, when the, um, or chapter 10. Chapter 10, when you have this huge angel that comes and has one foot on the sea and he has one foot on the land and he's got this little scroll in his land in his hand and he opens his mouth and he proclaims it and John says, I was about ready to write it down and God says, don't. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> really? Okay, wow. Well, if I'd have been alive in, in John's day, I'd have been one running up to him going, you can tell me. I won't tell anybody. <laughs> I promise. It's between you and me, okay? But John heard it, but he never wrote it down which also happened with Daniel, by the way. So, uh, but, so John's not the author of this. He's the recorder. And so he's writing this down. So he introduces himself in verse 4 as the writer. And then the author is introduced, which, of course, is Jesus, the, the Father and the Holy Spirit. Uh, and they're listed in verses 4 and 5a. Uh, you also have the recipients, that are, that, and I skipped them. The recipients are in the middle of verse 4 to the seven churches in the province of Asia. So this is the person section. You have all the people that are being addressed. The third main section in uh, chapter 1 is the praise section, which is verses 5b through 8. 
And I thought this was so neat when we walked through this a long time ago now. Uh, but it's, it's, it's packed. It just, it's, it's all about praise. In fact, the number one theme, some scholars say this, and I agree, the number one theme throughout the book of Revelation, and there are major themes, it's praise. It's God acting, and then there's praise. Now, there's also mourning and wailing and weeping. In fact, uh, the first time I ever preached this, uh, back when the church was over in that like little, uh, not the strip mall, but way out in the middle of the, on some highway, I forget what it was, but it was all dark, and we had little tables and all that. But um, um, <clears throat> the way I talked about it was a big football stadium. And on one side, you got one team, and on the other side, you got the other team, and you've got the, the players that are on the field, and God is the one orchestrating all of it. And it's, it's the, one, the, the one team that's, that's a part of the world. They're called the world. Uh, that's their team. They've got a mascot <laughs> and all that. Uh, their team... Their team is, is, is wailing and weeping because they're living in constant defeat. They're getting crushed. But God's team, okay, Jesus is the captain. He's the big deal. They are just out of their mind and praise because every play that God has, has established is, is coming to pass. So the whole book is just, it literally is an unfolding of events, and then they'll just pause, and there's praise. And it's not just praise from people. It's praise from the angels. It's praise, praise from the heavenly host. It's praise from animals, people under the earth, above the earth. I mean, just everywhere. It's all full of praise. So this is the praise section, which is a major theme, and he introduces that in the first chapter. Now, the fourth and last part of the introduction is the Patmos section, which is verses 9 through 20. And I want to give you these because they're really important, and we can break this down. Uh, these sections, we've got subpoints and all that, but the Patmos section is really important. In verses 9 through 11, and I'm not going to write this. I'm just going to give you this, and you can write it down. Verses 9 through 11, you have the call of John okay, to write down this book, and he tells you that. Hey, I was on the island of Patmos. And on the Lord's day, not the day of the Lord, it's a different phrase, but on the Lord's day, in other words, the day that God had ordained. In other words, John finds himself, think about this, God finds him, John finds himself on the island of Patmos, and then it all comes to a head where he realizes that I have been brought here, that God has foreseen that I would be in this place at this moment for such a time as this. And God, it's, it's the Lord's day, the, the day that the Lord ordained for John. By the way, it's really unique language that in all of his other writings, this is the only kind of language that he used that pinpoints a certain day. That he was brought here. All of the pain, all of the hurt, all the suffering. This was a significant day. And he was brought here for a purpose, to record this. So it's a huge event, and he tells us about that. It's the call of, of John. In verses 12 through 16, you have the Christ introduction, where Jesus is introduced. And it's the, the same attributes in verses 12 through 16 that are, that are mentioned. They're the attributes in verses 12 through uh, 16 that are mentioned, they're the same attributes that are, dis, uh, that are ascribed to him in chapters 2 and 3. <clears throat> So when Jesus introduces himself, the attributes that he uses, the eyes like blazing fire, the, the, the sword that comes out of his mouth, all of that was introduced back in verses 12 through 16. Verses 17 through 19, that's the commission, okay? That's the commission, where John is actually commissioned, okay? He's got the call. Jesus introduces himself. Now he's commissioned to write that down, which is very important. And then the last verse of the chapter, which is verse 20, is the church. They are the recipients 
<coughs> of, of the letter, and specifically the churches of Asia Minor. That's chapter 1, which is an introduction to the book and is extremely significant. Now, when you come into chapters 2 and 3, um, and I don't know if we really need to outline this, you have each of the seven churches that are mentioned. And maybe we should just say that. Each of the seven churches are mentioned, okay? And you can read them. I mean, it's, what is it, 1 through 7, and then 8 through 11, and then or chapter 2, 1 through 7, chapter 2, 8 through 11. You can go through and look, and there are all the seven churches there. And what's important is not so much uh, the verses that are ascribed to each church as it is to look at the seven churches as a whole, okay? Do you get that? Looking at the churches as a whole. There's three main aspects to Jesus' address to these churches. One, he introduces himself, okay? And it's very unique. And we've talked about this before, and you probably remember this, but when Jesus introduces himself, I thought it was really significant that he never uses his name. In fact, the name Jesus is not even mentioned in chapters 2. There's no formal address of Jesus, okay? So instead of using his name, he reaches into the Old Covenant Scriptures and he uses those to introduce himself. And we found that to be important because when Jesus introduces himself, it's not just an, introdu an introduction of who he is, it's an introduction of what they're supposed to look like, which means, and again, this articulates the message that we, you and I, believe extremely well because Jesus comes and says, listen, this is what I look like, which is what you're supposed to look like. This is how I see, which is how you're supposed to see. This is how I feel, which is how you're supposed to feel. And it all revolves around, and I probably should have the same letters. Thank goodness Stephen's not here. I'll have to work on that. To work on that. But he talks about their context. Jesus, and this is so huge, Jesus comes and says, get into my perspective of your context. Get out of your perspective. Get out of, don't listen to your own feelings. Don't listen to your own bodily drive. We, we all have those, okay? And to a certain extent, they're not bad. You just don't trust them that I'm interested in his perspective. I'm interested in how he feels. I'm interested in, in his deal. I mean, I, hey, I, I, I want to see through his eyes. Did you have a question? Okay, shoot. But I've got 30 minutes, so be hurry. <laughs> the brother of James. No, no, they, he lost his head years ago. So, yeah, this is, this is John. No, good question. Good question. Seriously. Yeah, this is John, the brother of, of James. Oh, I know. That's right. Yep, John, the brother of, the brother of James. <clears throat> Wrote five of them. So, hey, so Jesus comes, introduces himself, and he says, this is what I look like in your context, which is what I want you to look like in your context. Okay? He's giving them. And what would you not give? <laughs> To have Jesus walk into the church and say, this is how I want you to see. This is how I want you to feel. He does that, and he's still doing that. The last thing uh, that he does uh, to these seven churches, and again, he does this to every single church. He never deviates from this. Not one time. He comes and he talks about a result that he wants to bring about. And if you, uh, if you enter into your context of life, looking at it through his eyes, there's a result that he'll guarantee. This is what I do. This is what I will produce. If you don't lean on your strength, if you walk in and, and rely on my strength in the midst of your circumstances, this is what's going to happen. Okay? And that, that's the message that he says to every single church. Just get, get into my perspective. Get into my plan. Get into what I'm doing. Okay? Lean, lean on me. Look through my eyes. 
And he does that in chapters uh, 2 and 3, which has been awesome. And we've got all kinds of stuff in that. Now, chapter 4. <laughs> this, is, this is a blast. This is the fun part. Chapter 4. Okay? Chapter 4 is all about the throne room. Okay? It's all about the throne room. Okay? Uh, verses 1, the first main section, would be verses... Uh, I better do it. I better do it correctly here. We call it the throne. The throne of the throne room, which is verses 1 through 3 and 5a. 1 through 3 and 5a. It's the first main section. Uh, the next one is the 24 elders. And they are talked about in verse 4. He's got great detail in those. And by the way, that is so, I've just been so disappointed. And I'm not that smart. I'm not. <laughs> okay. I'm not a scholar. But I don't know how they missed this one. I mean, I don't know how many commentaries I looked at, and they all missed it. I was like, dude, you call me a bonehead. Look at you. Good night. Because you've got 24 different classes of individuals in the Old Testament that represented a ministry that mirrors from heaven. <laughs> I know. I was like, duh. Good night. Okay? So we, we'll, we'll, I'll talk to you about that next time I'm around. Um, verses 5b through 6 is the... can't find a T for the sevenfold S-E-V-E-N-F-O-L-D sevenfold spirit work on that for me will you Nathan verses 5b through 6 and of course he talks about the sevenfold spirit of, of, of God and verses 6 B through 8, we have the four living beasts. And I actually, I'm going to call that beings. I changed that. Because they're not beasts. They're beings. 6B through 8A. Because they're not beats, beasts. They're, uh, or beats. They are beings. And then you have the last, the remaining part of the chapter is the atmosphere of praise. It's like he inhabits it. It's like it's his aroma. 8B through 11. And that's chapter 4. Now, uh, I've, been, we've been, I've been really just, again, fun stuff. Not even preacher material, just Jeremiah having a big time with Jesus. We've been looking at this first one, uh, which we'll call that uh, one, I guess. Uh, we've been looking at the first one, which is the throne room. And uh, there's a couple of things that, that struck me as really, in, uh, really important, is that uh, when you come into the throne room, it is the dominant theme of this chapter. Now think about this. I mean, the chapter has what? 11 verses in it? Okay. The chapter has 11 verses in it. I think that's right. Has 11 verses in it. Uh, and the throne is mentioned 14 times. 14 times, okay? And so, I think that's right, 14 times in the chapter. I can see you're all counting, so I hope I'm not lying to you, okay? But, I mean, it is a dominant chapter, and the, the word throne is mentioned 46 times in the book. 
And I somehow mentioned, missed that in here, which I'm going to have to go back and look at some of this. But the throne is a dominant feature. It's the very first thing that John sees when he gets into the heavenly realm, which means it is a, in this throne room, it is a significant feature. It's a dominant feature. And not only is it the throne, but there's someone who is sitting on it. And there's some characteristics. The significance of the throne is it's in the center. Everything flows from it. Everything revolves around it. When other people are mentioned, they're around the throne. They're in the center of the throne. In other words, it's, the throne is always used. It's always referenced because it's the center point. Think about this. It is the center point of the kingdom of God. It's a throne, which is really important. Now, what I found most intriguing about this, and I run, we run into this everywhere, whether you're dealing with current trends in sexuality or you're dealing with trends in, in terms of substance abuse, whether it be you know, alcoholism or marijuana or money or, or just any of the kind of uh, issues that Christians have to wrestle with in our day and age, there is so much uh, ambiguity. There's so much, what's a good word for it? There's so much relativism and, and just opinions on Christianity. And I mean, every week we come across these seemingly obvious perspectives from Scripture that people are, you know, just missing the boat on. And one of the things that I found interesting as you begin to talk about people, and I, I talked to a lady here in Lowe's, and it was hysterical. I go in, this is right before I left town, and uh, to go up north, and we were, this was a couple, few weeks ago, and I go to Lowe's to pick up something. It was a chain because my little light bulb was not long enough because my wife's short, so she can't reach it. And so uh, I bought her a, 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 you can get light bulb clicker extensions. I wasn't aware of that. I thought she just had to pull a chair from the dining room in every time she wanted to turn the light on or adjust the fan. That's what it was. So anyway, so Dick was like, no, they've got little light bulb extension chains. I was like, well, I'm going to run out and buy one. They're 35 cents. So I'm, I'm there buying one. I'm checking out at Lowe's. And this lady, I'm wearing my reject religion. I'm, I'm wearing my reject religion embrace Jesus t-shirt. Okay, which is very fashionable. You should probably look into getting one. And um, I'm in line. And this lady, <laughs> she's checking, she's doing the checkout counter, and she looks at my face, and she looks at my shirt, and she's doing her thing, and she looks at my face, looks at my shirt, looks back at my face, looks at her shirt, goes back to the thing, and then she looks at my shirt, and I finally was like, are you getting it? <laughs> That's what I said to her. I said, do you get it? And she looks at me, and she goes, yes, yes, I do. And I agree with it 100%. I hate religion. And she's just going, and there's all these kinds of people around, which I'm beginning to get nervous because I'm not going to be sucked into her category. I mean, I should have just kept my mouth shut, but that's hard for me. And so, and she finally ends this whole thing with, yeah, I just worship, I just love worshiping Jesus however I want to worship him. And I was like, well, no, you didn't get it. Okay, that's, that's, that's not, come on, I, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about coming back to the person and worshiping Jesus the way Jesus wants to be worshiped. It's all about him. And then the conversation went downhill from there. <laughs> and I ended up leaving. Okay, so it's really, it was really awkward and really awkward. Okay, but the deal is, is that when you come into the world, think about this. And this, think about this. When you come into the world and you listen to people talk about the afterlife, you talk about people who's died and you celebrate their life. You talk about people and, and their spiritual life. There is just very, very seldom is there a throne. Very seldom is there a throne in their religious language. There's, there, see, heaven for most people is not about, 
I'm going to a place where I'm not the big deal and I live in servitude of another. They call that hell. They don't ever talk that way. See, they all talk about it as just, oh, it's me. It's self on the throne, okay? That is a major, major theme, okay, with the world, which is, you understand, there is one class, and I've been using the word class. There's one, and I haven't preached this, so I've been using it to myself, <laughs> but there's one class of Christian, and that's servant. There's many offices in the church. There's many avenues of ministry, but there's one class. It's servant. If you're not a servant, you're not a Christian. Because literally there is one master, and it is Christ, and I am his servant, both here and there. When we go to heaven, he is the big deal. There is a throne, and there's someone sitting on it, and it's not you. <laughs> so if you want to be on your own throne here, you're going to hate heaven. Because there is, it's the most distinguishing, it is the most prominent finger, uh, uh, feature in the book of Revelation. He see, it's the first thing he says. What did I see when I went up? I saw a throne with someone sitting on it. And, it's, and, and it literally contrasts with the world. Got to hurry. Now, and there's other things, but these are just, and again, this is not preaching stuff, just my, my fun time. There are three basic ideas that I want to give you about this throne. Did you get the rest of this over here? This is the easiest one. I can erase that. Three ideas of the throne that are in the passage. Number one. Let me give them to you really quickly. Number one is uh, the throne. It, in the throne room, and specifically the throne, you have revealed his person. And I don't know if I want to call that personhood, but it's the person. And specifically, this is the father. This is not Jesus on the throne. You say, how do you know? Because Jesus approaches the throne in chapter 5. And the Holy Spirit is mentioned uh, down in, yeah, verses 5b through 6. So this is, this is the Father, okay? So we're talking about the, the Father, the personhood uh, of the Father, the personhood of the Trinity. Listen to how he's represented. Listen to how, how it's, there's some significance here when he's described. He's described with two characteristics, okay? He's described with Jasper, and we really got to I don't want to keep you. And carnelian. Uh, jasper basically is another a form. It, it, it looks like crystal, but basically scholars are saying um, it looks like a diamond. And a carnelian is basically ruby red. Which Krenda would like that because she likes red stuff. So it's, it's, it's diamond and ruby red. And by the way, if you were to search this out, and you can do that, it's a lot of fun, you're going to find back in the Old Testament that the temple was arrayed specifically, chosen by God. He chooses the stones. He says, go find this one, go find that one, go find this one. And he picks these, among others. He picks these stones. And these stones in particular were at the centerpiece of the high priestly garments in the, in the Old Testament. You'd say, well, what's so significant? It's literally... And this is all over the place. This is, this is the most, these are the most beautiful stones on the, on the face, uh, face of the earth. It's the best and the most beautiful of what the earth can produce in terms of beauty. Precious stones. It's better than gold, okay? It's way better than silver. It's, it's jasper and carnelian, which gives you, and again, these are symbolic, okay? Gives you a couple ideas. The first is, okay, the symbol is that Jesus, or rather the Father, is magnificent, and we got a number of what Nathan would call superlatives. They're, he's magnificent. He's priceless. And the whole theme throughout the book of Revelation is that he is incomparable. In other words, 
you, you can't compare him to anyone, which is why John says there's someone sitting on the throne. Well, who is that? I can't put him into words. He looks like stones. <laughs> Probably not, not these stones, okay? But hey, I mean, he looks like, I mean, how do you put him into word? words? And when you get into Revelation, what's really important is that he is the standard. His person is the standard for life, for goodness, for happiness. Everything in the kingdom comes back to him. I mean, that's the big deal. Now, I want to comment on this because this is really important and it's, it highlights the whole study of what we're doing. When I first got saved, I was so raw in the message that I thought Christianity really was, I'm going to stop doing these things. I felt convicted. I knew they were wrong. I'm not going to lie anymore. I'm not going to steal. I'm not going to kill anybody anymore. <laughs> I'm not going to do any of that kind of stuff. I'm stopping these things. And I'm going to start doing these things. And my heart was right and I wanted to bless the Lord. I wanted to live my life for him. And that's the language I used. But you understand, when I really, after a while, it really began to dawn on me, and God really began to deal with me, is that I was just, I'd stopped doing flesh, I'd stopped doing bad things with my flesh, and I started doing good things with my flesh. Well, flesh can only produce flesh. And the standard that is set, again, is him. He's magnificent. He's priceless. He's perfect. He's incomparable. And he is the standard of the kingdom, which means if you want to get in the kingdom, you don't do your best. It's his best that's being done. He's the standard, which means that I don't come and say, well, I want to, hey, I want to bless and I want to be used and, and I'm going to, and I'm going to do this. It's coming and, and it's being, and literally it's being the vehicle by which he is the one who's ministering and working. You're living in his perspective. You're acting in his timing. You're walking in intimacy with him, ministering by his power, out of his resource. See, he's the standard. He's incomparable. He's the one on the throne, first thing. The second thing is, is uh, his position. It's his position. And his position is, is the judge. Um, the main theme, and this is the main thing, aside from praise throughout the book of Revelation, is judgment, period. I mean, you just cannot miss it. God is judging a world. That's all there is to it. God is judging a world. Um, oftentimes, we want to talk about the fluffy bunny God in the sky, and that's not Jesus. That's not the Father. There is judgment. In fact, the language that's used, thunder, by the way, if you remember, I don't know if you guys remember Stephen going through some time ago, the phone term, remember the phone studies he did? That's this term. It's sound. Uh, and he's talking about the thunder, the sound from heaven, which is interesting. There are times when God speaks in the Gospel of John and people think they hear thunder at the resurrection of Lazarus. Was that, that's God speaking. There's this sound, but it's not just sound. And it's not like, ooh, a pretty sound. Not that kind of sound. What kind of sound's coming from the throne? Lightning and rumblings. And where these terms are found are, for instance, when Jesus, is, when Jesus dies. There's judgment that's been paid by Jesus. And there's lightning and there's rumblings. In fact, an earthquake happens in building. In chapter whatever, what is it? Chapter 11 of Revelation, you have the two witnesses that get struck down by the Antichrist. And after three and a half days, they come alive. And God says, get up here. And as soon as they leave, lightning and rumblings and thunder. And there's a massive earthquake and 7,000 people are killed. Okay? And it has to do with judgment. The whole big deal is judgment. That literally, he is the one on the throne and you and I are accountable to him. Paul says, it is appointed for everyone to die once and then face judgment. 
period. In other words, you and I will stand and give account to him. Now, here's the big deal, and, and we got stuff under here. But yes, it's his person, he's the standard, and we're accountable to him according to that standard. See, I'm not going to answer to my wife in heaven. <laughs> um, I'm not going to answer to my church. I'm not going to answer to you. I'm going to answer to him who must, whom I must give account. Okay, I'm accountable to him. But here's the beautiful thing, also in the throne room, and it permeates everything, is that uh, his promise. And again, all of this is on the throne stuff. And I mean, it all emanates from the throne. There's a promise here. And the promise is, is signified by the rainbow. And a rainbow uh, is easy to figure out what the rainbow is. You just go back and look, and it's used a couple different times. But the most prominent in the introduction of the rainbow is with the flood. What was flood? Judgment. But it's layered with this promise of mercy. That God says, I am slow to, and you understand, that is a major, major theme. God has promised mercy to his people. With the flood, I'll never do this again. I'm promising mercy, is what he says. And when you get in the book of Revelation, yes, you do have God. He is the standard, and there's, I mean, only by the name of Jesus are we saved, period. It's only by him that you and I are saved. No good works. There is no good attitude. Why? Because he is magnificent. He is incomparable. He is the standard. Okay? So he's the standard by which we will be judged. He's who we're held accountable to. He is the one that's going to hold us to account. But it's layered in mercy. And the judgment that takes place, it's almost like bracketed. And I've given you this before in the past. But when you go into Revelation 9, uh, chapter 9, <clears throat> you begin the three of these judgments that are called woes. And they are terrible. I mean, they are terrible. People, it says you are longing to die, and God says, I'm not letting you. In fact, the Greek word, and I've been just, just playing with this stuff, it says, but death, what does it say? They long to die, but death will elude them. The word elude literally means run from. <laughs> it gives you the idea that they're saying, kill me, and the grim reaper's like running, going, nah, 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 and he's running away from them, okay? I thought that was hysterical. I, they, hey, I, I, the death is running from them. I'm not allowing you to die like this, is what he says. And there's tremendous, tremendous pain and agony and suffering. But you come down to verse 20, and God says that the reason he's doing this is that you might repent. He will not tolerate nor let you walk into hell. He will, he will not let you flee from this standard. And in, during this hour of judgment, during this hour that comes upon the earth, he will not give you an easy way out, because an easy way out is damnation and death and destruction. And I've been praying for that. My wife and I have been praying for that. Do not give me an easy way out with my kids. I, not preaching stuff. I'm talking raising kids, trying not to throw them out the window of the bus kind of stuff. Okay? I, I don't want the easy way out with my kids. I'm not pawning them off on somebody else. They're not somebody else. God has put them in my house, and I will be held, his accountable. I will be held accountable to him in terms of his standard for raising my kids. And he's, he's so merciful to me. Not mercy in terms of letting me slack off or merciful in terms of giving me another standard. He's the standard. And he keeps bringing me back. In fact, some of the difficulties in, in, in that whole process and the pain we, we find, it's almost this kind of, wake up. <laughs> I'm trying to get your attention. Man, I love you. And this is really important to me. And all of this emanates from his throne. 
Now, I haven't even thought about you and how you would want to apply that to your life because this has been me in my own personal walk. But he is on the throne. <laughs> it's, just, it's a dominant feature. There's nothing in my life that happens outside of his okay, which is tremendous. And he wants me to succeed more than I want to succeed. And there's a standard for my life that he's holding me accountable to, and he will not let me away from that. Isn't that sick? Oh, isn't that delightful? <laughs> Isn't that just awesome? 